Our uh, scripture reading this morning, sermon text this morning, is from Romans chapter 16. Uh, I'd like to ask you please to be sure to have that in front of you, either uh, in the bulletin or in your own, uh, in your own Bible. We, um, we really try to work hard to remember and to remind you that uh, whatever your ministers would say to you uh, is only from God's Word, that uh, that's our only authority that that's what we're here to talk to you about, to declare to you, not our own ideas, uh, but the Word of God. So uh, we want to have that in front of us and uh, give our attention to it. Uh, this morning we're reading uh, Romans 16, beginning in verse 17 through verse 23. So uh, before we do that, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we're, we are... Uh, by your by your grace, impressed again this morning, certainly not with ourselves, but with you indeed, impressed with how great you are, that uh, the one true and living God, the eternal one, the living one, the God who spoke the world into existence by the word of his power, the God who sustains everything that is including our very selves, that you, Lord, are in our midst, that you have come into this world broken by sin, torn by not just sin out there, but our sin, and that you've come into this world in the person of your own Son to redeem us, to draw us back to yourself, and that this is because you had chosen in eternity, to love us. Lord, these things are too great for us to comprehend, but we simply uh, marvel at this reality, that God has come down and that He is in our midst. Lord, we would worship You, we would adore and love You, and we would know You more fully and clearly and truly, because, Father, as a church, we want to be effective in our witness for You in this world that others would come to know Christ because of the way that we speak and live and what we say, what we pursue. And yet, Lord, we fall so far short of that. But we know that you're building your kingdom. We know that you're building your church, that the gates of hell won't stand against it. And we believe that you're using your word to do that, to stake your claim in this world and in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that again this morning that you would open our eyes, that you would draw back the curtain, so to speak, that we would again, even in the midst of this this life, which is in so many ways a pilgrimage through the wilderness, we're not yet where we are, are going to be. We're not yet who we will be. But Lord, we ask that this morning you will open our eyes and you will pull back the great realities of heaven and hell and life and death and eternity And that you will show us again the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, that you will humble us, that you will strengthen us. God, please be present with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're we're drawing uh, closer and closer to the end of Romans, and we've, we've been working our way through it since last August and come now to the next to the last uh, sermon in this series. And I want to give our attention this morning to these uh, words in verses 17 through 
uh, 23. So let's give our attention to those now. Paul has been greeting some of his friends in the church in Rome, friends that he uh, hasn't visited with there in Rome personally, but nonetheless who are dear to him. He's been greeting them, and now he uh, moves into a warning, uh, an appeal to them. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosapater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Well, last week we were looking at uh, the greetings in the first part of this chapter, and they're uh, very warm and uh, affectionate, full of, full of love, as Paul is remembering and uh, greeting his brothers and sisters in Christ there uh, in Rome. And in fact, it ends that section with this command that Paul gives, greet another with Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we may not know what to do with that. But at the very least, Paul expects that there would be in the body of Christ this real display of warm, deep, sincere affection and love for one another. That that ought to be the norm in the church. And so he leaves him with that greeting to uh, that charge to greet one another with a holy kiss. And then in what seems to, to me uh, to be a great place to end the letter... He says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Great ending. Love, Paul. Send the letter to Rome. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, he, he moves on as you go to verse 17, which we've just read. He, it, it can seem a little strange because he moves from uh, kiss one another, love each other, all the churches greet you, to a passage of warning and challenge. And it can be a little bit different, difficult to understand. And so, in fact, some people have wondered about the, you know, is, this, is this legitimate? I mean, was this added in later? How does it fit? What, what's the point of this passage? But I think there's actually a very personal pastoral reason for these verses. And I think it, I think it makes very good sense when we understand what's going on here. In verse 16, Paul says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Remember, he's been ministering the gospel all throughout uh, Turkey, basically, from Jerusalem up to Turkey and over to Greece and all through that area. And he's planted churches. He's seen them grow, but he's also seen something else. He's seen that over the course of time, many of those churches have faced, either from within the church or from outside the church, they faced false teaching. Distortions of the gospel, perversions of the gospel have come up. Paul's had to deal with that uh, in his letter uh, to the Galatians. He'll have to deal with that to some degree in, in other letters. But as he thinks, he, he's bringing them greetings from these other churches, and he begins to think about these other churches, I think. He begins to think about, 
these other places where controversy has come up, where challenges to the gospel have arisen. And I think what he's, what he's saying is all these churches greet you and, and these things come to mind and he's saying, now, I want you to be very careful. I've laid this gospel out to you in great detail. I've now, of course, he didn't write it with these chapter headings, but now for 15 chapters, I've laid out for you the content of the gospel. I've worked hard since chapter 12 to apply that gospel to you, to help you see how it needs to work itself into your life. And now it's as if Paul is saying, and you need to trust me as a pastor There will be challenges to this gospel, and you need to be sure that you stand firm in it. Be careful. And so he moves into this passage of of warning, and these words of warning actually come out of his love for them and his concern for their safety as believers in Jesus Christ. So he offers this warning, and then he reminds them in a very powerful way of the grace of God and then adds some more greetings to the end. So let's look at this uh, passage here. And I want you to see, first of all, that what Paul is saying here, what the Spirit is saying to us through this passage, is that we are to be on the lookout. Literally, he says, watch out. It's a very strong word. Be on the lookout. Watch out for those who would divide and deceive the church. That's what he says. I, I appeal to you, brothers. I implore you. I urge you. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So this is, this is Paul's main point. This is his main concern in these verses. I, I want us to spend most of our time uh, here this morning because Paul's very eager to warn them about people who will cause divisions and who will create things that are, con- bring things into the life of the church that are contrary to what they've been taught about the gospel. So he's warning them about division and deception. He's warning them about disunity and also about doctrinal impurity, perversions, because he's seen it happen before. So Paul's very concerned about this, and I'm not so sure that we share his level of concern about this. Paul's concerned about this that at the end of this letter, after really expressing his love for the church, he's so seriously concerned about this danger that he wants to warn them and challenge them. And I wonder if we share his level of concern about the danger of division in the church. His concern about the danger of false teaching coming in and and ruining the church. So I think we need to listen to Paul very carefully, and I would suggest that we do it in two ways. First, look at what he says and think about what he says with regard to divisiveness generally, what it means to divide the church, to disrupt the church, and then to think specifically about the dangers of false teaching as a main way of dividing the church. So that's two sub-points, if you're keeping score, that's two sub-points under the first point. The first point is watch out. There will be people who will introduce division in the church. There will be people who divide the church, who seek to do that. And, And some of them seek to do it by false teaching. Watch out, Paul says. So we're talking first about division generally, and then about the dangers of false doctrine. Now notice what he says here. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Now, if you're a member of this church uh, or, or of any church in, the, in our denomination, the PCA, then the final, the last of the five membership vows that you've taken 
is that you have made a solemn promise before God and before your brothers and sisters that you will, remember this, study the purity and peace of the church. And that, that really means that you're, we together are saying, I promise before God that I will make the purity of this church a priority in my life. I will make the peace of this church a priority in my life. I will study it. I will promote it. That is, with what I believe and with how I live my life, I will seek to promote purity in Christ's church. Uh, in the relationships that I have with others, I will seek to do all that I can to promote peace in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we've all promised to do that if we're members of this church. And, and actually, those who are elders and deacons and pastors in the church take those promises and, and even more stringently because we believe it's so important. We see it to be such a crucial issue for the church. Now, from Romans 13 on, Paul's been hammering away at unity in the body of Christ, at the importance of, of us loving one another, being united in the body of Christ. He's been saying that's actually an essential application of the gospel. If, if love does not characterize the church, then the gospel is not being believed and lived out. God's made peace with us by the cross of Christ, Paul's been arguing. Therefore, we're to be at peace with one another. So here, here's the question I think that comes up to us this morning. Are we as serious about this as the Bible is? Do we care as much about division in the church as God seems to? Now, I would suggest to you that there are perennial struggles in the life of every church, and we're not immune from it, that would suggest that we tend not to take this as seriously as we should. And I would suggest as, as two examples, the persistence in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ of unreconciled personal conflict between believers who are content to functionally hate one another and avoid one another and live unreconciled before one another, though God has reconciled them to himself in Jesus Christ, if in fact he has. But where there is widespread, in the, and, and I, I, think we're, I think we're known for this. I say we, I mean the church at large. I think often Christians, we are known for this sort of division in the church. So-and-so doesn't like so-and-so, and so-and-so doesn't get along with so-and-so, and this group doesn't really like this group. And we become content with that. We become content with a sort of detente in the church. And God is not pleased with that. It doesn't fit the gospel. It doesn't flow from the cross. And it suggests that we don't take these warnings about divisions in the church as seriously as God. Now that may be a, a point of personal application for some of you this morning. Now, there's another thing I think suggests this as well, and that is the tendency for church members to complain about the church. I mean, you, maybe you know how that goes. On the way to church, you know, everybody's in a hurry to get here, and you, you get here, and then you come to worship, and you get in the car, and you go home, and you start... Somebody starts talking bad about something, somebody or something. 
And you think about how we tend to zero in on things that we don't like in the church. And, and we begin to focus on those and complain about them and, and grumble about them. And we talk about it to other people. And we stir, what does that do? That stirs up division. That's sowing seeds of disunity and strife in the church that Jesus loves so much. Now, those are two examples very concretely that I think challenge us to consider, are we as serious about this as God is? Watch out, Paul says, for those who cause divisions. In fact, he's telling us that rather than being tolerant of this kind of, this kind of thing, we need to be calling each other on it. We need to be challenging each other, warning, correcting, rebuking in love where it's necessary, reconciling. And according to what Paul says, eventually if someone, if someone won't listen, they're stirring up division in the church, they won't listen, they won't turn from that, they won't repent. Paul says avoid them. It's a strong word that he uses. Actually, he's saying intentionally have nothing to do with people like that. Do not associate with them. Because there, there's a cancer, there's a toxin that begins to spread throughout the church. So Paul takes this very seriously. And I think we need to be sure we don't miss the point. And here it is. Jesus Christ loves his church. He loves his people. He loves you. And that's singular and that's plural. He loves his church. And he does not want anyone to cause division in her. He does not want any of us to live or think or speak in a way that would cause disruption of the peace for which he has shed his blood. And so this kind of behavior, I think these kind of attitudes just don't fit with the teaching of Scripture, do they? So Paul is saying, watch out for those who cause division. So I want to challenge us to ask ourselves two questions. One, Negative and one positive. Negatively. Please ask before God, before another believer if you need to, am I doing anything that's disrupting the peace of the church, the unity of the church? Am I in any way uh, doing something that's moving toward division? Secondly, positively, am I studying its purity and peace? Am I devoted to these things? Because Christ Jesus is devoted to these things in his church. So Paul gives this warning about division in general. But notice what he says more specifically. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. So he's saying not only watch out for those who divide, but watch out for those who divide by deceiving, who divide by false teaching, who divide by unbiblical ideas and errors. So Paul really zeroes in here on those who cause trouble in their church because they're promoting bad doctrine. Now, one of the things we've been saying over the last several weeks is that the church, when it's healthy, always is robustly theological and robustly evangelistic and missional. The two to go together. And when one is off, the other one gets off too. And so Paul is zeroing in on the danger of false, false teaching. Now, this isn't just Paul's idea. You remember maybe what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Strong words. Paul's picking up on these ideas exactly here in Romans 16. He's saying, Watch out, church. Watch out for people who come in and start teaching things that are contrary to the Scriptures. 
contrary to what you've learned. They'll be smooth. They'll be well-polished. They'll be well-spoken. They'll have straight teeth. They'll say things that are helpful and nice. And they will lead you astray. And in fact, he says very strongly about them, such people who do not teach things consistent with the word of God do not serve Jesus Christ but their own bellies. They're in it for themselves. They do not serve Christ and therefore they're not serving you. They're leading you astray. They're false. And Paul says, watch out. Watch out for those who deceive. Now he says elsewhere in Acts chapter 20, that this will happen from within the church and from outside the church. So Paul's saying, watch out for those who deceive. Now, do you know who the most dangerous false teachers are? They're not usually the ones who say all the crazy stuff. Because for the most part, most Christians are going to hear the crazy stuff and they're going to know, they're going to be repelled by that. The most dangerous, insidious forms of false teaching come from the people who just leave important things unsaid. Who just leave important, crucial elements of the gospel unsaid. Just gloss them over, leave them aside. Paint them with a little bit of a nicer color maybe, softer edges. They may not spew heresy out of their mouths, but they, they never really talk about what they should talk about. They, they're PC, they say what people want them to say. Never really say anything objectionable. And there are tons of preachers and teachers and books and churches and movements that talk about God, talk about Jesus, talk about the Bible, but they never really talk about God's glory. They never really talk about God's holiness, the atonement of Jesus Christ, our sin, our guilt, our need for the shedding of Christ's blood, the call to repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, and he loves these people, and because he loves them, he's saying, please, And I'm saying to us this morning, please be careful what you hear. Please listen carefully to what you hear. Please think carefully about what you read. Footnote, I hope you're reading good things as Christians. But a lot of Christians just aren't very discerning about what they will listen to, what they'll read. Just kind of patch together this quilt of theology out of a scrap from this place and a scrap from this place, and they don't really go together, but this is what I've come up with, and this is how I'm living my life. Paul's saying to us, please be wise about what you listen to. Please be wise about the kind of counsel that you accept. And this is very pastorally significant. How often in the church do we see Believers in Jesus Christ led astray by well-meaning but foolish counsel from within the church. It happens a lot when there's marriage trouble. One spouse will go to a friend and seek counsel. How do I, what do I do? How do I do this? And they'll start to get just some terrible worldly ideas come in. There's no Bible. There's no gospel. There's no, nothing distinctively Christian about the idea, but it's coming from a friend and it sounds familiar and it sounds right. And so I begin to do it and you get deceived. Paul's saying, be very careful. You need to know what you believe and why, or you will be vulnerable to those who mislead you. You notice what he says? That there are people who, by smooth talk and flattery, by the way, that's the word, and we don't want to do word studies all the time, but that's the word that we get eulogies from. 
Now, you know what it's like to be at a funeral service, and, and maybe you know the person whose funeral it is. And it may be very hard to be there because the person who's speaking is saying all kinds of nice things that don't fit reality. Well, there are a lot of teachers that do that too. God warns Israel in the Old Testament about those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And who heal the wounds of my people lightly. Now, do you know why? I think some people in the, in the church are, are uncomfortable when there's a lot of talk about sin. And like, you're sinners. All the time, very deeply. And I am too. And can we just not talk about that all the time? It's depressing. But you realize that, number one, we're not free to do that. We're constrained by what God says. And number two, it's, it's only when we recognize what's true that we can enjoy the real peace that the gospel brings. This gospel that Paul's been teaching is only available for people who know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I am helpless. I am guilty. I am dead in sin. I am undone. I need nothing less than the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ to save me. And if we're not preaching that, if we're not believing that, if we're not clinging to that, thinking about it, talking about it, living in it, then what do you think is going to happen? Well, Paul says that these people who have their smooth talk and flattery deceive the hearts of the naive. That means if you're not careful as a Christian, you can just kind of get, be, be a pawn in somebody else's game. If you're not thinking about what you believe and whether it's in the Scriptures... So let me, let me wrap this part of it up this way. One of the wisest things I read this week was from John Stott in his commentary on Romans. And he said this, when, when you come to any kind of teaching, ask three questions of it. Is, does it fit with the rest of Scripture? Does it exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it promote holiness? And I think you see those questions actually coming from this passage. False teachers will be known, Jesus says, by their fruits. In other words, you won't see a pattern of holiness and godliness in their lives over the long haul. You'll see that they're serving themselves. On the other hand, those who are teaching you the gospel, teaching you the truth, you should be able to see in their life example of what they're teaching you that confirms the truth of what they're teaching you. So you ask, does it lead to goodness? Does it exalt Christ? You see, Paul says these false teachers do not serve the Lord Christ, but Paul is quick to say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You need his grace. Does it fit? Does it magnify Christ? Does it lift up the cross? Is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? So Paul points them to this need to watch out for false teachers, to test what you hear, to make sure it's the truth, and to make sure you're paying attention to what you believe and not be naive. I had a great conversation once with uh, a man who's a chiropractor, and I asked him one time, uh, and I had a reason for asking him this, but I asked him how they train to spot aberrant you know, bone structure. He says by studying x-ray, healthy x-rays. Now, some of you have probably heard the example of how, how, does, how do people who are supposed to spot counterfeit bills, how are they supposed to recognize counterfeits? They don't spend all their time studying counterfeits, do they? They look at the genuine article 
They study carefully what a real dollar bill looks like. That's a great analogy. How are you going to know? How are you not going to be led astray? You've got to know what's in this book. Know what God says. Know who he is. Know his gospel. Cling to it. Boast in Christ every day, and you won't settle for anything less than the gospel when it comes along. But there's something else Paul wants us to remember, and I want to deal with this more briefly. So he wants us to watch out for division in the church and for deception, false teaching in the church. Secondly, he wants you to remember, wants us to remember that God is coming soon to deliver us from all of this. Very interesting what he says in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We might not tend to put those two things together, would we? Peace and crushing. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet soon. I think Paul, wanting to encourage them, what he's doing is he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 3. You remember what the Lord says in Genesis 3.15, right after sin comes into the world, God is addressing Eve and Adam, and here he's addressing Satan. And he says to the serpent, from now on there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and your seed. And one day there will be a seed of the woman who will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And all through Scripture, that's what we see working out, that God in Jesus Christ is finally bringing into the world one to do what Adam failed to do, to stand against the temptation of the devil, and by his death and resurrection to crush the devil, to crush evil, to bring in a world that's restored by the grace of God. And that's what Paul's pointing us to. He's pointing us to Christ who's already bruised the head of the serpent, who's already set us free from his power, all of us who believe. But Paul is reminding them, but he's not done yet. The day is coming, and Paul says it's soon. It's the next thing on God's calendar. He is coming to crush the head of Satan finally and forever and to bring to him, into his presence, all of you who are waiting for him, to gather you to himself. God will completely do these things, and he will do it in order perfectly to establish his peace in this world. And I think that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? We find ourselves maybe either tempted toward causing division in the church or struggling with those who are causing division in the church. We need this perspective. God's coming soon. And he's coming soon to crush the head of Satan. He's coming soon to defeat evil, to establish his peace. Here's, am I as a believer in Jesus Christ? Or if you're not a Christian, to consider this. Am I living in a way that has in mind that God is coming to establish his peace? And that will either mean my absolute joy, or it will mean my destruction. If I'm in Christ, it's my great joy that God is coming to establish his peace. If I'm opposed to Christ, I'm the object of his justice. And so Paul is holding out to us this promise that God is coming soon. And then he points them very clearly ahead to their hope. And and adds a simple benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So Paul warns about the dangers of false teachers and of division. Reminds us that God's coming soon to deliver us. And then here, just very briefly, I think at the end of this passage, contrary to all the divisions he's warning about, he gives us this really wonderful picture 
of the fellowship that the gospel creates, the unity that the gospel brings to those who know Christ. You see that just in these greetings. Uh, Earlier in the chapter, Paul sends greetings to 26 different people. Here he's letting some of his friends speak up. I think it's not hard to imagine what's going on here. Paul is in the house of a man named Gaius, who he mentions here. Gaius was a wealthy man who had a home, and he used it for hospitality. Whenever there were Christians in Corinth, they were welcome at Gaius' house. And Paul was staying there. And it's likely that these other men are staying in the house as well. And, And Paul has been dictating this letter, as was his custom, to a man named Tertius, who we read about here. And he gets here to the end of the letter, and I just, this is imagination, but I'm just thinking of, of Paul saying, okay, he's, he's, he's said it all, basically. Hey, why don't you go get the other guys and bring them in here? Let them, let them send their greetings to the church in Rome. I'm sure they'll want to do that. It'll mean a lot to the church in Rome as well. Bring, bring them in here. And maybe, maybe they together were the first group that read through this whole letter before they sent it to Rome. But Paul gathers these, these brothers in Christ around, and they all send their greetings. And it's just really interesting what, who you find here. You find Timothy, who's mentioned in almost all of Paul's letters, who, wrote, who co-authored six of them with Paul, who was dear to Paul like a son, spent many years traveling with him. He refers to these, these three guys, Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, who's called Sopater elsewhere in the Bible. These guys are from different cities, different regions, some from Jewish backgrounds, some from Gentile backgrounds, some, like Timothy, from mixed backgrounds. Then there's Tertius, the scribe that Paul allows to sign a greeting with his own hand. There's Gaius, this man in Corinth. There's Erastus, who... Actually, there's an inscription on a stone, a pavement stone in the city of Corinth that bears Erastus' name from the first century. He was a prominent city official in the city of Corinth. And then there's this man, Quartus, who Paul simply calls our brother. Now here, look, what stands out here again if we think about this? Is it, Paul's just amazed that God brings people together from different places, different racial backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. And 10 or 15 years ago, Paul would have been eager to kill some of these men if he could have. But now here they are, sitting in this room, in this house in Corinth together, loving the church in Rome, praying for the church in Rome, about to send this letter. They're knit together in Christ. God's united them in Christ. He's connected their, them with their, belie- their fellow believers in Rome. Now, let me, let me just wrap it up this way. One of the most dangerous temptations that we face, I think, from day to day is the danger of boredom with the gospel. Rather than being amazed at the gospel of Christ, which Paul has been laying out for us, rather than being amazed at it, we just become accustomed to it. And I I have no doubt some of you are struggling there. You may not know that that's the reason for what you feel, but that that very well may be the reason for what you're dealing with, what you're feeling or not feeling. Maybe you, maybe you haven't been amazed at the power of the gospel because you haven't been living as if you really need the gospel. Maybe all you really want is for God to make your life work better, make your marriage better, make your kids behave, 
whatever it might be. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe your desires are, are really no greater than that, and you've forgotten that God's desires for His children are so much greater than that because He wants you to see the power of His grace to change everything. He wants you to see His power to make you His child, to turn strangers and enemies into friends and dearly loved brothers and sisters. He wants you to remember His power to overcome all the effects of sin and Satan and death, that He's coming soon to do that, that He has not forgotten you, that He has not left you, that He's with you. He wants you to see how all this points to His graciousness, His kind, generous love to you. Because if you'll see that, then you won't doubt Him to do anything else. So we have this great temptation to lose sight of the, the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the value of the gospel. And I think that's what God ultimately is showing us here in these, in these passages. In this, in this warning about division and false teaching, reminder of God's coming, even these greetings, God is showing us again the priceless value of the gospel, the power of the gospel to bring together and the value of the gospel, it's worth defending. And what he's doing here is he's saying to you, if you're his child, do not let anything pull you from it, either in how you live or what you believe. This gospel is worth knowing and understanding. So the question is, will you give your mind to it so that you'll know it deeply and carefully? Otherwise, wouldn't this whole series in Romans be in vain, be lost on you? All that you've been hearing for a year and a half, you need to know. You need to believe. You need to understand. You need to work it out. We need to work it out in our lives. And so it's as if God is saying through Paul, this is all worth knowing and understanding. Will you give yourself to it? It's all worth believing. It's worth investing every bit of yourself in this. Will you give your heart and soul to it? Will you love this truth? Will you love what you've been taught? Because you love the God who's revealed to you in this gospel. Paul's wanting to go to Spain because this gospel is worth sharing and teaching and defending and preaching, making known. So will you take it with you? Whatever that might mean for you. Will you take this with you? And it is worth defending this gospel, Paul says, watch out for false teachers. He's saying, really, I think, this, this gospel is worth fighting for. It doesn't mean you need to be combative. This gospel is worth defending. It's worth taking a stand for. Whatever that might cost you, whatever that might cost me, this gospel is worth taking a stand for and defending and guarding. So I think it's a great challenge for us here at the end of Romans, almost the end. And we'll see Paul next week leave us with this great doxology at the end of the letter. Because all this is intended to lead to praise, isn't it? All of this is intended to guide us to God's throne where we would worship him and know him. I want to read this. Uh, I, I don't do this very often, but I'm, I'm gonna, I want to read this quote to you here at the end. Because I can't not read it to you. Okay? This is from J.C. Ryle. Uh, part of it's on the front of your bulletin. He's writing this 160 or 70 years ago, but sounds very contemporary to me, very applicable. For your own soul's sake, 
dare to make up your mind what you believe. Dare to have positive, distinct views of truth and error. Never, never be afraid to hold decided doctrinal opinions and let no fear of man make you rest contented with a bloodless, boneless, tasteless, colorless, lukewarm, undogmatic Christianity. If you believe little, those to whom you try to do good will believe nothing. The victories of Christianity, wherever they have been won, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men roundly of Christ's vicarious death and sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross and His precious blood, by teaching them justification by faith and bidding them believe on a crucified Savior, by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up the brazen serpent, by telling men to look and live, to believe, to repent and be converted. Christianity without distinct doctrine is a powerless thing. It may be beautiful to some minds, smooth talk and flattery, but is childless and barren. If we want to do good and shake the world, do, you, do, do we want to have an impact? Do you want all of this to make a difference in your life? Do you want us to make a difference in Athens and around the world? If we want to do good and shake the world, we must fight with the old apostolic weapons and stick to dogma. No dogma, no fruits. No positive evangelical doctrine. Gospel-centered, rich doctrine. No evangelization. Let us cling to decided doctrinal views, whatever some may please to say in these times. And these times. And we shall do well for ourselves, well for, the, for others, well for the church, and well for Christ's cause in the world. Friends, this is a great gospel. Great truth from God. Let's give ourselves to it fully and to Him fully. Let's pray. Lord, grant that these things would be so in our lives. Keep us from division. Keep us from error. But positively, oh Lord, knit our hearts more and more deeply into your own, that we would love you with a love that is always increasing, that we would want to know you more fully and more clearly, to, to know your word, to know what it means to, to have your favor on us. And Lord, give us for each other a deep love that lasts and that endures and that's rich and that, that shows up. Uh, and Lord, give us a love for the gospel, a love for everything that you've said in your word, that we would love your word, Lord, that we would love your truth because it's by the truth that we're free. And Lord, we pray that you would make us as a church a, a light in this dark world, that uh, we would be faithful in our witness to you. Lord, build us up, we pray. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, which we now come to share in at the table. We ask that you would meet with us and minister to us in Christ's name. Amen.